0: Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. With rates rising and inflation hot, still very hot in the US as many of us uh, would have come to realise in the last week or two, a lot of investors are really struggling to understand whether equities are holding up okay, whether they're going to continue to hold up okay, or whether they're really due for a fall and see the volatilities back. Thankfully, reporting season's just finished in Australia, and we do have some clarity around how Australia's listed companies are faring in what we always call a rapidly changing environment, but it does really feel like one right now. Today, I'm speaking with Vince Pizzullo, who's the Deputy Head of Equities at Perpetual Investments, To talk about what we've learned from reporting season and any other updates that we've had and what we can deduce about the months ahead for the ASX. Vince, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thanks Gemma, great to be talking with you again.
0: So Vince, we haven't really done a good wrap-up of reporting season, but it's come at a really interesting time, right? People or companies are reporting up to 30 June. Things change since 30 June. It's all happening at the moment. How would you rate the overall performance of the companies that did report last month? You know, it's been an incredible couple of years. Do you feel like things are starting to normalise?
1: So leading into reporting season, obviously um, expectations had started to fall since pretty much mid-June. Um, a lot of negative news was being priced into companies during that period, mostly around the fact that the uh, significant uncertainty as to how aggressive the central banks would be in their efforts to try and lower inflation. Now, regarding normalisation, it's a relative term in that if people are expecting conditions to go back to 2019 type levels, it may take a significant amount of time for this to occur, or it may never occur. Um, And the reason for this is uh, several changes have occurred in the last few years, which will delay like a the return to pre-COVID conditions. Like the, the, the most significant of that is uh, deglobalisation. That sort of kicked off a realignment of trade along both security and strategic alliances rather than, you know, the traditional laws of comparative advantage. You know, the one that can produce the good at the cheapest level should produce as much of that good as possible and trade with those that can't. So the investing climate is very different to pre-2019. And if you couple with this, like there's been an attempt to move away from like, and this is in the last couple of months, it's been quite noted, from traditional hydrocarbons for energy. This has shown (laughs) or led to an increase in costs for the core commodity complex. So, you know, lithium, copper, nickel, those sort of things, which the decarbonisation agenda is heavily reliant on. So the higher average inflation rate, if we're moving towards that decarbonisation, is sort of baked in and it's expected to stay higher. So due to these sort of national-type policies, whether it's uh, deglobalization or reshoring, as people may refer to it, and deglobalization, you're going to have higher inflation baked into, um, into forward expectations for quite a while. I find
0: that really interesting. I was having a conversation with someone about supply chain this morning and I are saying, oh, we really should do something on supply chains. And I was like, yeah, but you end up talking about inflation again. <laughs> All we That's talk true. about is inflation and yet you know, as you say you make that linkage back to reshoring uh, yeah. or the, the sort of peaking of globalization and coming back to onshoring it's quite extraordinary how heavily linked all of these different components are and how they seem to be converging into a scenario that's really challenging for investors yeah. right it's uh it's an extraordinary situation when you look at the companies that did report, did anything stand out for you in terms of guidance? Were there any predictions or outlook statements that really grabbed your attention? Talk to global factors, onshore factors, things that are really very, very poignant at this point in time.
1: Yeah, look, um, if you, it's always interesting to look at the lead up to results season, um, and always we always keep an eye on the laggards running into results because that's where. Um, expectations tend to get set pretty low uh, for whatever reason. And the market tends to not focus much on the idiosyncratic risk, so the very much stock-specific risk. And particularly this year, it's been a very much macro-driven market rather than very stock-specific. So those companies that have been the laggards for the previous several months, they proved to be a bit more resilient in managing their business. So, for example, like Brambles, the market was not a believer in the guidance that they had previously given and they are actually expecting quite poor guidance going forward from the company. They've had to deal with significant lumber inflation in the US, which they've been trying to pass on to their underlying customer base. Uh, the market didn't believe they would be able to actually do that and maintain margins and not lose customers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the Brambles' result was a lot better than expected, Their management's future expectations were far better than the market was pricing in. It was actually quite a good result, uh, and it is showing that some of the things they've been Doing prior to COVID, which was a sort of like, I hate to say, I hate using the word digital transformation, but it literally is the biggest problem Brambles has is they lose pallets, as in they go missing out of the network and they're sitting in someone's yard. So they've been investing in an ability to try and track those pallets. Uh, you don't have to put it on every single pallet, but the ones where you know you, you are losing pallets, you want to find out where that is. And then you can have a, a conversation with the customer that's actually sitting on the pallet. Um, so it does show that they are maybe starting to turn that part of the business around. We're talking to North America, obviously. Another one which I thought was it's been a former market darling and, it, you know, everyone quite loved A2 Milk, but it's been, it's fallen a lot from $18 down to, you know, 450 type range over a very uh, short amount of time. There's been a new management team that's been brought in to fix the business up and they've uh, set some pretty ambitious future, future targets, the new management team. Uh, the market's pretty skeptical about the steps the company had taken to try and improve. And the biggest issue here is the age of the inventory that's in several of the channels in China, because it's like 12 months old. Uh, for infant milk formula, it's quite old uh, stock because of the significant oversupply. Because there's so many people supplying to, into China, um, and then you had a drop in activity in China due to COVID. A lot of inventory was stuck in the channel, and that needed to be that situation needed to be addressed first. And the market didn't actually believe that the management team could do it. They also, look, they they doubted their, the company's ability to, re, to start growing sales again and revenue, in particular given you've had some pretty, you know, we all know about the sporadic lockdowns that are going regionally in China. And also another theme over the last few years, particularly during COVID, has been the declining birth rate in China. So what they reported was actually an excellent result. They, like, they displayed excellent execution and they have a very methodical uh, shift in A2's go-to-market strategy, which is starting to show some benefits already. When you couple this with, you know, we like this as a factor, when companies are trying to turn themselves around a bit, is that they've got a net cash balance sheet, which is almost up to 20% of the market cap of the company, um, and particularly in an environment where higher credit costs are stronger, costs um, have never been, um, Having a really great balance sheet during a low interest rate environment, you never got the benefit. But in an environment where the cost of uh, credit spreads and just the base rate of of interest rates going up, will start to favour those businesses with great balance sheets. And that flexibility will provide them with future opportunities to actually execute the strategy without having to worry about their their six-monthly cash flow. They can actually dip into their balance sheet if they need to, to take a more of a longer-term view. The other point I wanted to sort of bring up is that a lot of companies actually didn't provide any guidance at all. It was mostly due to the potential of, you know, the weakening consumer, the uncertainty regarding how far down revenues and margins, which are very elevated because of COVID, um, particularly if you think about the discretionary sector, retail, where there was no promotional activity required, you could pretty much sell out everything during COVID. And COVID's actually pulled demand forward into a very tight two-year period. So in this environment, with a materially high cost of living and limited, more importantly, limited fiscal stimulus, so corporate visibility is quite limited. This is where you have to start thinking about the future prospects of the companies you're investing in and to try and cancel out some of the short-term noise we're dealing with today. I mentioned earlier, it's a very macro-driven market. You you want to be starting to think a bit further past the noise that everyone's worried about over the next 12 months in particular, 18 months, where the yield curve will be less of an issue. It's more about um, about the depth of the recession or slowdown and how central banks will react to that. History suggests that they tend to wait longer than the market will be happy with. So for a lot of companies, it's it's a very difficult environment to be operating in. So you want to be playing towards quality businesses with really good balance sheets right now.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. That um, over the last few years, balance sheets haven't been mentioned a great deal, except no. at the beginning of COVID when we started to worry a little bit, and then we all realised, mm. so don't worry about it; it's all good. rates so <laughs> <laughs> well well. to zero it'll be fine. Yeah, it turns fine. out your debt doesn't cost you anything anymore, um, and now suddenly it's all an issue. But you feel at the household issue, yeah, household level, it's such an issue. Also, are you you talking about the macro-driven environment? You're obviously a hundred percent correct about that. But the flow-on effect for many businesses is very real. When you look at the universe of companies that you look at, you, know, you talked about A2 Milk. I'm guessing you wouldn't have touched that two years ago, right?
1: No, yeah, we we uh, went an owner up at those levels. Um, was felt given it is a one product business that the margins that they were earning were probably unsustainable, and that they were maxing out the margin at the expense of future prospects of the business in development of their you know market share in China and their strategies and and also their distribution platform into China. They needed to broaden it out a bit as they'll rely on the Daigo channel to, to generate sales into that market. And uh, what it took was, you know, it still had a good balance sheet, but you needed the company to realize that they need to bring their margins down. And what the current management team, new management team done is they have reset margins much lower. Now, for us, as a starting point, that's a lot better to be in because you reset the market expectation, but you still have a great balance sheet. And if the management can execute on the long-term, their long-term targets, then it, from where we are today, it's actually quite a cheap stock. And that's in our view. We do own it in all, a lot of our, our funds. The PIC, the perpetual equity investment company, has got a pretty significant position in it. Uh, And so, yeah, you're right. Uh, These sort of companies, again, the former darlings, we tend not to play around. They're great businesses, but sometimes you can find chinks in the armour where you can just have to be patient and wait for the market to realise it.
0: I find that really interesting because often fund managers like yourself, you will... Exclude a number of companies because of the valuations and just go, nuts. Nah, it's far too so expensive. And we can see the risks. Um, we don't often hear about you guys coming back and going, do you know what? It's cheap enough now. And we can see them doing the turnaround and it's starting to work. So that's quite exciting.
1: Well, it, it's, it, you know, a lot of companies during the life cycle of a company will go from a hero to a zero pretty quickly. And as long as the fundamentals of the business are intact and the industry structure is pretty healthy, it's about, you know, the, where I've lost most of the money is when the management aren't particularly good it doesn't actually align with the interests of the shareholders but more importantly you know trying to force a, a company that doesn't grow to grow and usually the way management typically does that is by using up the balance sheet borrowing and making acquisition led to an acquisition led strategy historically they haven't turned out great occasionally companies that have really good balance sheets will wait for a, a pretty significant business cycle and use that balance sheet at the lows of their industry cycle, and that's when you can add a bit of value. But, you know, with A2, we always recognise it was a high-quality business and it's a good brand uh, and that was maintained even though they had some issues regarding the development of their end markets. But now they've lined up with what we believe is if we've met the management team quite a few times, they are a high-quality manager and they've proven it now. They're a quality management team and that the, the strategy they're embarking on does seem to fit where A2 is in its life cycle.
0: That's a really cool story, and I think a lot of investors will be excited to hear it. A two is one of those ones that a lot of retail investors do look at, and uh, and liked it when it was high, and wonder yeah. about it when it's low. So it's um, it's uh, it's always on everybody's watch list. You've talked about the macro environment and how challenging it is, and I think how challenging it's going to become. Do you feel the market has? brought or sort of come back sufficiently to reflect those risks or do you think there's still quite a bit of room for caution with some of the companies that are still looking a bit toppy?
1: Uh, Look, previously you sort of mentioned that the building blocks of inflation, it was actually already been baked in well before COVID, as I mentioned regarding decarbonisation, you know, the war in Ukraine has shown up, how heavily reliant and how very finely balanced the global energy system is that uh, it doesn't take shocks particularly well so that, that was already happening before because the oil and gas companies were cutting their capex materially and they weren't replacing declining uh fields so the net supply was actually sort of shrinking on a forward basis because they're acting rationally they're saying you know they want people don't want their product in the future so they're being well, while we continue to invest and all it took was a slight shift in demand Uh, And for, as I mentioned to you before, for strategic political reasons, geopolitical reasons, you've had the whole system get upended. And what moves first? Price. The consumer is, the main issue here is the consumer is now sort of, and this is one of the concerning things we look at, is they're starting to dip into their lines of credit. Uh, In particular, one thing we've been looking at is that the level of home equity withdrawals actually stepped up recently. And people do that, you know, try to maintain their lifestyle or they're just trying to meet the higher cost of living. So credit is usually used to fill in the differences. So these are one of the things we look at as a risk, which the market sort of knows there's maybe a problem, but they're not identifying it yet. What really concerns us is why the market's sort of on top of the inflation story in a sense that they know it's there. They're trying to measure, you know, six uh, a month and a half ago, you know, the market thought, oh, we're about to pivot. And you get a couple of pretty difficult prints and they're going, oh, my gosh, you know, we're going to be the 100 point rate hikes of a potential down the road now. Um, But what concerns us more is the fact that productivity is non-existent. You know, this typically manifests as as higher rates of inflation. And, you know, the Australian government has talked about real wage growth, not normal, real wage growth, which typically means that sort of like a self-reinforcing cycle for inflation. What does that do? typically will force central banks to be more aggressive. Most people today in the market have never experienced a really aggressive rate rising cycle and what that does to asset markets. Um, look, inflation will probably settle down at some stage, but going back to 2% won't happen for a while. This means that if central banks are targeting 2% inflation, the only way they can sort of get there is to lower demand like materially. It's a bit different this cycle it's a bit more like the 70s potentially in that the supply response in particular on commodities but the commodity companies are um, are being managed for price rather than volumes uh, and to make matters a bit worse in a sense that <laughs> the that inflation is going to probably be a bit persistently higher you know i mentioned earlier all the good balance sheets a lot of them are in the resource companies they've actually paid down debt running net cash balance sheets so they don't have to continue to produce to try and maintain, like, to pay off debt, et cetera, or creditors. They can actually sit on their cash balance sheets and not run their mines at 100%. They can actually manage the price of the underlying commodity. You know, we've seen this with copper. Copper's fallen a long way, uh, but what you've seen, we've seen in the last couple of months, is a lot of mining companies in the copper sphere have reduced their production for reasons other than than just price, more technical issues uh, at the mine site, uh, et cetera. So you got to think about, okay, we've got these factors which are going to contribute to maybe a higher average level of inflation for longer. You know, what does that typically mean? And for us, this affects the long-duration assets or companies that make no money, you know, make no profit. These types of companies should be avoided because they've been living in a bit of a, it's been a Goldilocks situation for anyone with a, uh, a new idea. They can get financed pretty quickly. And... These, mar- these businesses who are marginal style businesses, they do require pretty healthy equity markets and more importantly, access to capital in the debt markets, whether it's a private debt market or publicly traded or all the public markets. And we've seen it already. Just look at the number of deals which have not got up, takeover deals, which are relied on private equity. You know, those are typically pretty finely leveraged deals. They usually run with quite a bit of debt. And those are getting repriced or they're, they're backing away. So... You know, for us, we, we always try to focus on the more cash generatives. I hate to call them shorter-duration businesses, but companies that can generate cash today. In particular, if they've got a lot more control as to what they can do with their business and are less reliant on the overall shape of the yield curve or what base rates are.
0: I don't think you should be afraid of calling them shorter-duration businesses. <laughs> um, it's, you know, for so many investors, and we're finding this now, Um, And I'm really fascinated. It makes you feel old, actually, to be honest. But we look at some of the younger market commentators Mm -hmm. and they're excited about buying the dip. And I feel really old. I'm like, it's not a dip, right? The GFC was a dip. That was 55%. Yeah. You know, peaked a trough. That's a dip. You want to buy a dip? Yeah. Go for it. Except nobody did because they were exhausted after 18 months of losing money. Um, they didn't think of it as a dip. They just decided equities weren't for them after a while. But there's a lot of investors who are still excited by the stories and have trouble processing the idea that, Earnings will change based on the cost of capital, and, uh, and many other things will change based on the cost of capital. And suddenly, the great idea doesn't work so well when you have to go back to markets and ask for more money and they don't want to give it to you. So, uh, don't be afraid of me pulling that out. I think there's a lot well, of people who are struggling with those concepts at the moment.
1: You've got the level of abundant capital in these style of markets does disappear, it vaporizes really quickly. So, your ability to fund yeah. you always look at you know I hate that be as simple as the SWOT analysis, you know, you're looking at a particular industry and you always look at how easy is it for capital to enter and exit an in industry. That's that's effectively competition or the, the, you know there's more of an oligopolistic style structure. And in markets where the the only reason businesses get up is because of cheap financing, both equity and debt, that's not a great starting point for a business. That's the only reason you got financed is because you know, the, the the TINA, you know, there is no alternative. You know, that's why we actually favour a lot of industries where a lot of new entrants are coming in. And the only reason they're coming in is the shareholders of those businesses were happy to accept an extremely low level of return because it's a new idea or it's, you know, embarking on taking out a, an industry which is a bit old, et cetera, whereas the, the the incumbents in those industries have to make money. And that's the problem. That's, that was seen as a problem. So... We're quite excited by the prospect that you might get some companies which a lot of their competitors do rely on very cheap financing or a ve- in particular on equity where they get priced to revenue multiple style outcomes. Those companies will go by the wayside pretty quickly and in particular certain companies that are you know, leading edge, I'm not leading edge, sorry, leading in their industry had to fight off these, these interlopers so to speak they're, they'll probably strengthen through this period because they are cash generative. They can invest in their customer base. They can invest in their business for so not today, for three years down the road or five years down the road. So we, I get quite excited by the fact that this volatility is about at the moment because you get there's some opportunities will arise out of it.
0: I love that, and it leads really nicely into my next question, which was, what are the sectors that are really capturing your attention right now? I'm, I'm thinking of just boring old banking because it's been quite interesting being in banking for the last X number of years. Uh, we were constantly asked why we're not offering something as sexy and exciting as the latest massively loss-making competitor. And I was like, um so really, really serious risk controls in our business. <laughs> but yeah. um, it's quite fascinating. It's really interesting to observe and I wonder whether those questions will disappear in the next few years.
1: You know what's really interesting? How many nouveau banks, new banks, have handed back their licence? You know, vault. all these startups. I wasn't banks.
0: going to say that, but yes. Yeah, yeah look,
1: <laughs> obviously, I, 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 yeah, sorry about that. But, um, but how many have all handed back their licences, right? The only one that's still around is Judo, which is listed. But they're like a traditional um, uh, high-touch uh, SME banker, you know, with actual credit, people doing credit inside. That's a people business. So that's pretty much the only one. All the other ones just realised <laughs> there is this element of uh, this apathy, but more importantly, people trust a, a large bank to hold most of their, have the, most of their relationships. And when times get tough, they want that feeling. It's like, a you know, a bit of a security blanket.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. Are there any other sectors that have that similar kind of feel to you right now, or is it very company specific?
1: There's one I'm sort of vacillating over a bit right now. Um, looking at the commodity sector because there's quite a few overlapping uh, themes. Like, we're not thematic investors, but issues which you have to consider when you compare it to previous cycles. Uh, traditionally, when you know when they try to crush. Uh, economies, central banks, they they try and, as I said, influence demand as much as they can. The problem in this cycle is supply is going to be constricted still. And when I look at the commodity sector, when you try and understand how the market will treat companies, that, get, particularly in commodities that are given how weak the Chinese economy is, but then when we're looking at it, we're looking at inventory levels across the LME and at most companies. Uh, inventory levels for commodities are actually quite low at the moment, which is unusual for this part of the cycle. So uh, they typically run with high inventories and then there's a market clearing event where the price has to drop to such a point they just sell at any price. And this, this typically always happens during the, 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 the low and the business cycle. But in this case, they, they may hold up a bit better than has been the case historically given the, there is an element of capital discipline across the mining sector at the moment. And also, there's this overarching component now, which we haven't had to deal with in the past, is as I mentioned to you earlier, that the deglobalization theme. what you're looking at is nationalisation of commodities. In particular, the importance of certain commodities, as, as I mentioned here, the laws of comparative advantage don't sort of like function at the moment, and people are trying to get hold of like rare earths, China's a significant uh, refiner's of rare earths, The Western world doesn't have much refining capacity at all. So... That's a strategic advantage for China as an economy and the West has woken up to that. That's why we're sort of moving towards this, like, two sides. Um, and do commodity companies get caught up in that? In I'll look at Iluka. Uh, in particular, they've done a deal with the Australian government. They've got uh, a resource sitting there in Monazite, which is a rare earth. Uh, the Australian government's done a deal to, um, they provided a low-interest loan, uh, non-recourse loan to, I look at a build a refinery to process the, the monazite. Um, and I believe it's a particular reason is to basically for Western com- countries for that. That's effectively like the government recognising there is strategic value in commodities. So I'm just trying to get my head around when does the market sort of start to feel that is there's something else going within the commodity market. Um, so that's a, something else I'm sort of thinking about at the moment.
0: Yeah, I really like that thinking uh, and you talked about the massive dislocation in energy markets it has the same feel. Suddenly building a gas pipeline from Russia is not such a fantastic idea and the concept of energy security becomes very real for people. We've been talking about it for six months, but seeing the kind of extraordinary investment that's required to break down the dependencies is going to be really interesting.
1: Uh, Look, the, the, the one issue you've got to think about is, is central banks, because there's a lot of energy inflation baked into the system and probably in the next six months it will normalise because, we're, you know, the base rate's a lot higher. The, the oil price is at $80 to $90. You're just comping that. It won't be additive to, to the underlying inflation rate. But it has the prospect of spiking with any sort of like pickup up in demand. Because it's a supply issue, the damage that has has to be done by central banks to try and control that could be quite significant. How how willing are they to do that? Uh, particularly now that you're starting to see money supply growth, particularly in the US, start to slow. which, You know that's the grease for the wheels of the economy. When you see money supply growth start to go backwards, and we only started quant we only started quantitative tightening last week, a couple of sorry two weeks ago. So that can have some pretty material uh, impacts. So we sort of think that uh, when you look at the companies you should be investing in, you've got to just keep that in the back of your mind that it's going to take a lot longer than you think for things to normalise. And then in, in that environment, we don't mind because it usually leads to high volatility and that usually gives you some decent opportunities to, to buy.
0: I like that thinking. On that subject, so there will be winners out of this and we're, working on some content at the moment, Trade's about to turn 10 and a lot of the content is like, what well, did I learn over the last 10 years, uh, right? And what you learn is doesn't matter how broken things are, there's always an opportunity. <laughs> there's always a way to be part of the winners and there are winners even in very broken, uh, upsetting parts of the market and upsetting parts of the cycle. But are there any things that it, you are definitely trying to avoid at the moment, the things that really do look too hot to touch?
1: Yeah, um, I mentioned long duration because I still think that um, certain buyers of long-duration assets are sticking to the last, it's recency is a problem. So they're sticking to the, the cap rates of the last 10 years and they're, they're moving up. So long dura, you know, any movement in a cap rate up for a long-duration asset and that includes companies that make no money, that have you know earnings way out in the future at some point. Those subtle changes in cap rates have like material impacts on the value of those businesses. Um, but we've talked about that before. I think one other area is, is discretionary, uh, retail in particular. And it's obviously, it's, it's quite, it's already been mentioned before, I'm, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have, have read this, but you know, gross margins are really high and... Everyone's trying to work out how quickly those gross margins normalise. I'm starting to think that the market's trying to put that in the mar- in the numbers already. But one thing that people are not focusing on is the inventory level. Remember, everyone got panicked two, 18 months ago, not enough inventory in the system, et cetera. And, and in such a short period of time, companies increased their inventory levels materially. And you saw this with Target in the US. They literally came and just wrote off most of their inventory almost immediately. That's a cash impact Um, because you're basically saying we're going to clear this inventory at at rock-bottom prices. You might get sales at the end of the year, again, I suspect into Christmas. But be very careful of companies that have quite a high level of obsolescence in their inventory. So a fashion item can go out of fashion pretty quickly. Don't ask me what I'm talking about there about fashion. I'm clueless about that stuff. But anything that has a high obsolescence, the risk is that um, you do get write-offs of inventory. And if you haven't got a good balance sheet to be able to wear that, it could cause some balance sheet stress. so there, there's some areas um, you know when you think about auto parts, that stuff you can keep it on it's usually reasonably high gross margin and it doesn't turn as much as other retail sectors, but those parts can sit on the shelf for a while and they don't they don't go obsolete. so you can you can always sell through that. so but that's one other that's at the other extreme of companies that tend to have low obsolescence of inventory. So that's one area I'd be focusing on is an area just to be aware of. So always go through the cash flow statement, look at the carrying inventory of a lot of these companies, how much they, they've got on balance sheet at the moment, uh, and then always bring that back to what their uh, the net debt levels are in their businesses. Can they sustain a, a period where sales drop materially and they're stuck with inventory?
0: I think that's really worth thinking about for a lot of investors, although you have a teenage daughter, so I don't know how you don't know about fashion. It's,
1: <laughs> oh, that's, I'm not going to
0: <laughs> It's a, one thing, Perpetual, you guys tend to have, tend to have, you have four criteria for a business and I think it'd be immensely valuable for those listening for you to talk those through because I feel at this particular point in the market they might really help people focus. Uh, if you had time for that.
1: Sure, absolutely. Well, yeah. Um, if I set the scene, I think if we're going to live with a period of higher volatility, long, longer volatility for long, sorry, higher volatility for longer, pardon me, you're going to see both in the bond market and, the, therefore, because of that, the equity market. Um, you you want to be a little bit more opportunistic at this stage and waiting for those few points in the companies. That's why we like to have, uh, we look for particular type of characteristics when we're looking at companies. You know, we look at the quality of the business. Again, I mentioned to you earlier, just trying to understand the returns of the industry and the business itself. Uh, look at where they sit on the cost curve, either at the low end of the cost curve, try and understand um, that uh, the ability for, I mentioned earlier for capital to come in and compete away excess returns. All These are very, it's stuff that people learn in the first year of finance, the SWOT analysis and understanding those things. It's, but you have to do quite a bit of work to understand that. Um, the second quality uh, filter we look at is the balance sheet. I mentioned it a couple of times. For us, it keeps you out of trouble um, when you look for companies that don't have a lot of debt. You know, we usually have a to net debt to equity of about 50%. Some companies can run above that because they're more of an infrastructure-style business. So we look at uh, interest cover, so, you know, how much, how many uh how many times of earnings do you have to cover your interest bill every year? You know, and that starts at a minimum, bare minimum of three times that that number, um, even interest cover. Uh, then we look at, and this is more a subjective measure. We look at the, the third quality of filter is the quality of management. I mentioned to you before, that's important where I've lost some of my worst losses have been where the quality of management has been less than uh, less than we expected, and it just does happen. You want to understand. You look at the history of management always always look at the REM structure. How are they getting paid? Uh, As long as that lines up with you you as a shareholder and an owner of the business, usually works out okay. But then you want to look at does their strategy suit that business in that industry? That's a pretty important thing to try and assess. And lastly, and I know I mentioned it before, dropped the word profitability in there a couple of times, there's a reason we don't invest in companies that aren't profitable. We don't mind if they're cyclical, but as long as they're profitable, um, it's a discipline to make money. It takes a lot for companies to generate a profit and to pay dividends to, um, to shareholders. That's that capital discipline. So um, as I said to you before, for the last 10-odd years, you didn't have to make money. You could get financed by the market, but now, you know, the cold light of days have dawned upon everyone that you actually have to, you, your cost of capital is a lot higher than you think. Traditionally, it's been around these levels. So. You know, we look at profitability as uh, we don't buy concept stocks. We also become company that can make money. So these are the sort of the four basic things we, we, we go. Every company we look at has to tick off before we'll even consider it for an investment. Then after that, we look at the valuation to assess whether there's a margin of safety in, in what we're buying.
0: I'm sure it sounds very... Simple to you and to our older and more experienced investors, they're like, yep, yep, yep. Uh, but for a lot of our younger and newer investors, they've been around in the ten-year period when you would, frankly, be penalised for investing in those <laughs> sorts of companies. So just giving them a reminder that that uh, that the world might be changing back to uh, something those of us who've been around a little bit longer might be more familiar with is uh, is useful. And I think the framework you use is very helpful for people in this environment. Vince, Perpetual's one of Australia's oldest asset managers. You guys have been around for a really long time. So, where can people go to find out more about you guys and how you're managing money on behalf of your clients?
1: Yeah, you can go to um, perpetualequity.com.au. That is the I mentioned earlier the listed investment company that I manage. Um, There's a large number of articles uh, written by the team about the companies we own, own and what we don't own as well, uh, and why we don't. And we we'll have some thoughts on the market. You can also go to the perpetual website, the corporate website, perpetual, uh, perpetual.com.au. You get access to all the uh, the asset classes that we manage, and you can get we have articles and uh, videos, etc. On there as well.
0: Vince Pasulo from Perpetual Investments. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Gemma. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. We've received fantastic feedback. We love getting your questions. Please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. At Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness
1: of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.